0: You make software. We're here to help you do it better. I'm Mark Littlewood. You're listening to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. In today's episode, you're going to listen to Jason Cohen, founder of the Bear and WP Engine, who's talking about overcoming founder doubt. This was an extraordinary, open, honest talk at Business of Software USA 2017. This is not a presentation, this is a sermon. We're gonna take up as our object of study today a passage from the book of Hacker News. This is a anonymous post that was written on Hacker News a couple months ago. And it's titled, I don't wanna be a founder anymore. I'm using a throwaway account because there's a lot to lose from speaking how I feel. I founded a company several years ago. Fast forward to today, and we're profitable, growing steadily, debt-free, and we're about to be acquired. You may ask, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that I'm supremely unhappy. Each morning, my first thought has been, what could today be like if I didn't work here? I drift off into exploring what it would be like to work at Walmart or the construction site outside. (laughs) It seems so stress-free. Then my phone starts to ring and I'm snapped back to reality. This morning I locked myself in the bathroom with the shower running because I don't want my wife to know and cried my eyes out. So from my possibly skewed point of view, I have two options. Quit, which effectively kills any acquisition and the company as well or suck it up and work on the same thing for two to five more years. I've been mulling over a third option, which is to hire someone to do my day-to-day, but I don't know how to make it work. The product is too complicated for someone to come in and take over because it requires tons of domain knowledge. Additionally, the product isn't that interesting, it's just a glorified CRUD app, and it's been hard to retain developers. Is it common for a founder to go through this train of thought before an acquisition? Is there a trick to convince yourself that you want to keep doing this? Please tell me I'm missing something. Maybe I'm depressed and need drugs, Sound signed, a founder in pain. So that's not good. And if you ask people in this room how many people feel like this or have felt like this, it would be a lot more than I think uh, you think. And there's a lot of people nodding their heads even now. So it's not that funny actually. Let's answer his questions, is it common? Yes, first of all, I experienced it myself when selling SmartBear, which I'll describe later, of course. Um, I've seen it with three other founders just this year, contacted me just because, I don't know, they felt comfortable unloading, I guess. Um, At uh, Columbia Business School, in combination with Credit Suisse, they did a study. It was only 22 entrepreneurs, so this is not like statistics, but it is interesting. 22 entrepreneurs that all had sold their businesses for more than 100 million (laughs) dollars, so a good financial success by sort of any measure. Um, All but one experienced this sort of uh, depression after selling their business. (laughs) Wow! (laughs) Here's another one you might know. This is Marcus Persson. He uh, founded Minecraft. He sold it for hundreds of millions of dollars to Microsoft. So here's a guy who has everything, all the money uh, you could possibly want, especially in Sweden where no one has money. Um, but then again, no one's poor, so it's nice. Um, not good for entrepreneurs though. Uh, it, but he made hundreds of millions of dollars, made a product everyone loves, Minecraft, right? And he melted down, uh, this time in public on Twitter, so I can show it. He alien, he's alienated from everybody he worked with and liked. He couldn't find people to relate to. He talked about just staring at his monitor, waiting for his friends to get off work. Someone said, well, you shouldn't have sold the game. But he said, no, it's the best thing I ever did. There's probably a lot of story behind that, right? But no, even though he's in the state, it was still the right thing, according to him. So he was stuck, just like this guy in the article, just you know, different, maybe bigger stakes, perhaps, but still stuck. It's really common. So it's not exceptional, and it's likely your future whether the company's small or large. Whether it just dies of natural causes, or you sell it, or whatever, there's lots of outcomes. And yet, it seems like very often the outcome is sad. And why the hell are we doing all this anyway if it's gonna not make us happy? That's kind of strange. This is hard, why why are we doing this? Now, of course, you may think this, (laughs) boo-hoo, you have $100 million, (laughs) deal with it, right? but I think it's not boohoo because it's, it's, uh, it's so common and likely. And so is there a trick to not have this happen? Of course there's no tricks, we knew that already, right? But there are ways to get around this, there are solutions. And it turns out the solutions, the, the things we can do about it, not only help avoid this fate, but also make the business stronger along the way, which I hope to demonstrate to you um, as I show you these things. And there's some questions he didn't ask that I think he should like, uh, how did I get here? Because after all, he's stuck and unhappy, and we know that the person in in our object of study here is unhappy, otherwise the answer would be clear. Don't take the offer. Run the business that you're happy running. That's clearly not the case. But this didn't happen instantly. It wasn't like he was happy forever and then all of a sudden super unhappy. That's not true. It was probably a frog boiling in water, right? There's probably stuff all along the way that he could have noticed or done something about Also, the company's clearly not healthy, right? Uh, He said that if he left, uh, it would die. Well, that's not very healthy already. So there's probably stuff that could have made the company stronger and we we should do that. Also, there's no way he did this on purpose. There's no way he set out to become in this state. And that means, and, and none of us do, right? And so that means we're all not purposely setting out to do this, it's an accident. So that means we have to be aware of something new and do something new to avoid this, right? So what could he have done differently is maybe the better question which we're gonna ask. So I'm gonna make the following case, that, uh, that the trick is to make emotionally difficult decisions all along the way. That there's these things that we want to avoid and, and not face and not act on. And if we can identify them and do it along the way, and I'll be of course specific about what those things are, um, then maybe we can avoid some, of th- avoid some of these things. And that means you have to decide to face them. And you don't have a boss, probably, um, and that means no one's gonna make you do anything. That's part of the problem, actually, because that means you do what you want a lot of the time instead of what you need to do. So that means you have to be your own boss uh, and and hold yourself accountable. Um, And we can see that here. If he quits, he kills the company. That means it's brittle. Why why might this be? Um, Well, he says the product is too complex, so only he can do it. That sounds like a good reason the product is complicated. We probably have things that we feel like only we can do. But if you think about it, aren't there probably 10,000 products in the world more complicated than this one guy's product that other developers work on? Is it really true it's too complex for anyone else to help? That's not the right. That's not the real reason. That's a good reason, it's not the real reason. Who knows what the real reason is? Maybe he likes the fact that he's so powerful or that he's the smartest one in the room. Uh, maybe it's an excuse for not being able to find good talent that can work on stuff, we don't know. But that's not the reason. The product being complex is not the reason. He also says the product is boring and it's just a crud app. So it's the most complex, too complex for anyone to work on, and it's just a crud app. Okay, gotcha. So you can see this is not, it sounds like a good reason it's not. He says it's just a crud app, so it's hard to retain developers because it's so boring. But there's a lot of boring products that, again, million of developers work on. So that's not the right reason. That's not the real reason. The key thing to keep, take away from that is it's been hard to retain developers. That's the crux. Why is that? Why has it been hard for him? Well, we don't know him, so we can't, or her, I should say actually um, so I so it's it's we can't say um, but there's probably something real going on there that's that this person doesn't want to face so let's uh let's see for ourselves here um, show of hands who's ever taken too long to fire somebody <laughs> right <laughs> probably anyone with an employee right, <laughs> right. okay it's funny because it's true. All right. Now raise your hand if you've ever fired anyone too soon. Nobody, interesting. One, okay, one, <laughs> great. So this is interesting, a consistent predictable failure of judgment, which is what it is. Did you not know that you need to fire this person? I mean, the very fact that you said it took me too long means you knew you should have done it already and didn't. You say you put the company first? No, you didn't. <laughs> you say you put your teams first? No, you didn't. It's better for the team if this person's not there, obviously, right? Good reasons are things like, oh, it'll be, it's better to have someone than not, but we all know that's not really true. Another good reason is, oh, my, my team would have a, a bigger burden if that person left, especially if they're a key employee, whatever that means. Isn't a key employee a failure of management? If there's someone so important that if they, say, get hit by a bus, much less get fired? That, uh, that the company can't continue? Isn't that a failure of organizational management? Do you wanna face that? Um, no, the thing is just simply that you don't wanna do it because you're scared. Because the conversation's going to be hard, and the person might cry, and you might cry, and they may not understand, and they may pitch a fit, and somebody else in the office may not understand, and they might cry, and they may pitch a fit, and someone may leave, and you may have to take out a restraining order. I've had to do that. That's that's legitimately scary. Like. It's okay to be scary, scared of that, that is scary. <laughs> that's, that makes sense. But that's the real reason, you just don't want to. It's too hard. Emotionally difficult choices that you have to face. Simple example that we've all, all of us have faced. So here's the way I think about this. There's things you wanna do and things you don't wanna do, things the business needs you to do, things the business does not need you to do. The business, I'm treating it like an object, I don't know if that's a good idea. Things that need to be done. And, of course, what you normally do is the stuff you want to do because you don't have a boss, because you're a founder. That's why you did this in the first place, because you don't like authority. <coughs> Fine. Um, or sermons. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> right? That's, that's, uh, that's what you do, that stuff. And of course, the stuff on the right column is what you ought to be doing, and you know that. right? And so this, is, this tends to be what you run away to, because you know how to do it. It's, it's easy. It's, it's probably valuable a little bit. It's not really that important, but it's it's somewhat valuable. It's easy to justify instead of dealing with the things that need to be done that you don't want to. So the question is, how do you know when you're in this box, right? What what is the signal that this is happening, that uh, something does in fact need to be done, that that is in fact the case, um, and you're avoiding it? How do you know that? So the way I know it is because I can't stop thinking about it. It's very simple. I'm thinking about it at 2 a.m. I think about it constantly. It won't go away. The fact that it won't go away is an indicator. It's probably something I have to do. <laughs> because if it wasn't that important, I just wouldn't think about it. <laughs> that's the case. Um, so I think uh, when something is difficult, that's when you wrestle with it. When something's emotionally difficult, that's when you wrestle with it. If it's, so, so, so therefore, when there's a decision that's emotionally tough and you can't figure out what the right answer is, then it means the harder choice is the answer. It means the harder choice is the answer because that's the one you don't want to do. Otherwise you would have done it already. That's that's the signal you're there. So what does this look like when you address it correctly? How do you address tough choices correctly? What are the things that you do to do it? So uh, I'll tell you a story of of actually the first time that I I had to fire somebody. Um, So I took two years to let somebody go that, uh, that should have been, right? And the problem was this person was a very, very smart, but academic, like wanted to work through all the stuff and do formulas and wait till the exact right answer was there and we needed people that get stuff done. This is common, right? Um, so I was worried the team wouldn't understand and all this kind of stuff and th- they'd get upset and all the things I just said, but of course it was just the opposite. The team said, what took you so long? <laughs> Didn't you know how unhappy that guy was? <laughs> Why did you keep make him unhappy by keeping him? Well, why didn't he leave? <laughs> right, but of course, that's not. That's. It is our job to to, make, to to do that for people sometimes. Right, delaying doesn't help. Never helps, but it can cause, for example, the team to see that you uh, aren't a good manager, <laughs> or put extra burden on them, or maybe your your good people leave because of the environment. Right, bad things happen often when you delay. Um, So then, let him go, gave him a good severance, helped him find a job, et cetera, he found a job doing something that required academic computer science. Yes, he was there for six years after that and happy. Exactly, and it doesn't always work that way. On the other hand, if they're not successful and not happy, they definitely won't find fulfillment there. You're definitely preventing them. It's still up to them to eventually find fulfillment, but you can decide whether you uh, help them to do that or not. It's a kindness, it's a kindness to let go of somebody where they're not being successful and can't be, Um, and it's the kindness of the team and yourself, you don't deserve, you're gonna do this anyway, you don't deserve two years of turmoil first, right? So that's the first example of that. So what could he have done differently? There's some of these uh, difficult things that he should have done probably and didn't that could have made the business better in the first place um, and also his own uh, psychology. So let me, uh, let me go on to another piece where he says uh, the product is complex, I have to do it. This is very common. I'm sure a lot of people in this room uh, feel like they're the smartest one in the room lots of times, maybe even this room. I bet, uh, I bet an interesting percentage of people believe that about this room. <laughs> Who knows? One person's right, I suppose, by definition. Um, <laughs> why not you? I mean, why not? <laughs> so. That's fun. But of course there's that you know phrase, right? Uh, obviously if that's true, then you haven't built your company to be very strong or very good. Your team is obviously not that good if everyone's not as good as you. Um, but it's common for founders to be this way. and In fact, we have to because when there's nobody at the company or only two, three people at the company, like, we have no choice but to be as good as possible in things that we're not expert in. Like we're all expert in something like maybe software, possibly product or design. There's probably just this small little window of stuff um, that's useful enough to uh, build a company, um, but isn't broad, and which we're expert in. And uh, we have to just make marketing work. We have to just make sales work. We have to make finance work somehow. So we, be- we had better be pretty good at uh, faking our way through the stuff that we're not expert in. That's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, unless this is also your hiring pattern. And you know this, uh, you know this thing already, right? You hire A players, they hire other A players. If you hire B players, they hire C players, and then you have a crappy organization. Steve Jobs is actually the one who said this, which surprised a lot of people. You can see some of the A players that worked at Apple right there. You can tell. Um, so uh, so here's what this uh, generally looks like for a, for a startup founder. You say, uh, for any particular job that you need done, like marketing or something, you ask yourself, Am I an A player? And uh, for something like engineering, the answer is probably yes. And you say, "Great. Well, then I know how to hire them. I know how to interview them. I know how to manage them afterwards. I know if they're doing a good job or not, and so on." Okay, great. And then for the uh, the case where you're not an A player, like uh, I don't know, AdWords, uh, doing AdWords or something like that. Maybe you've never done that before. You say, "Well, how hard could that be?" Um, I've met a lot of uh, people who do AdWords, and they're not as impressive as I am. And so, and I'm an engineer anyway, and engineers can do everything with engineering. I don't know why we think that. I guess because we're good at it. But anyway, and so I'll do it. I'll do the AdWords. I'll learn how AdWords works. Then I'll know how to hire a contractor or a person or is appropriate. I'll know how to hire them. I'll know what to ask them. I'll know how to tell them what to do because I'll have done it myself. And so therefore I'll be able to hire the A player. This is the normal uh, concept. The fallacy is this step, the part where you become an A player in in a couple months. And this is pretty insulting to anybody else who is an expert in say marketing or branding or sales or finance or anything. Now, you may not need an A player in something like finance when you're small. That's fine, if you don't need it, that's cool, but then why are you hiring anybody to do it if it's not necessary, if it's not important? So if it's something that's so important or valuable to the business like growing the top line through marketing or sales, something like this, um, then why would, you know, there's no way you're, you're an A player in sales after a couple of months. That's not true. But since you think it's true, you think you're hiring an A player, but of course that's clearly not. You are a C player. That's what it means to, to just dip your toe into something even if you're really smart. And then you hire other people who are only as good as your dumbass, <laughs> Who only has two months of experience in the thing. Um, and so that's bad. And so then you end up building this uh, organization where maybe in one area, your area of strength, you probably are strong, I believe that. And then these other areas you're not. And so actually this isn't the organization you build. You usually build this kind of organization because you understand this. And then you again you bring this mentality of like, oh I'm, everything can be solved with code and algorithms and machine learning is next, and that'll take all the jobs, so I might as well start, or whatever. Um, <laughs> that's fine. It just ends up companies that have pretty good products, actually, um, and not a lot of growth and that in other ways. And um, again, it's 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 not only is it insulting to other people, and, and I mean, that's, it's not our job to insult or not insult people, I suppose, but the business is not getting the benefit of someone who's really good at these things. And you probably need to be really good at some of these things. So the business suffers when you do this. And also, Steve Jobs didn't do that. This is what he said. He said, you don't, we don't hire smart people and tell them what to do, which is the pattern we just said. We hire smart people, they can tell us what to do. And you may think, well, that doesn't sound much like Steve Jobs because he was the one that told everyone what to do all the time, wasn't he? Except, no, he wasn't. Like, Steve Jobs was the guy who hired Johnny Ive, who's probably the best industrial designer ever. And Johnny Ive is the designer. And Steve Jobs worked with him, but he's the designer, right? And he hired uh, Tim Cook, who's probably one of the best COOs alive. (laughs) Right? And then he worked with them. did, did jobs hold everyone to an incredibly ridiculously high standard? Yes, but that's different, that's being an editor, not a writer. It's being an editor to get the best people you can, even people hopefully even better than you, and then be an editor. Yes, hold them to high standards, but get people that can do their, their jobs better than you can do their jobs, so that rather than telling them what to do, you're holding them to a high standard, like jobs, even crazy jobs. I know it's bad to use examples like Apple and Jobs because they're one of a kind, but nevertheless. So instead, uh, you should hire people that are better than you at the job, but that's hard. How do you do that? Like That would be like us interviewing a uh, pancreatic surgeon. <laughs> I'm not sure what to ask. Like, where you point to your pancreas. <laughs> sure. Uh, so... Right, so how do you do this? And it's just, like any, it's just like people who are not at this conference wondering how they're going to hire their first developer. Yeah, good question, right? Because they'll just talk—you know say all kinds of acronyms and things, and who knows? So it's a good question. So let me explain how to do this, because it's so important. So two things. First of all, you should walk away from your interview with this person feeling like you are now uncomfortable with, with the amount of ignorance you had before on this topic. It should make you feel insecure about what you thought you knew on the topic of say marketing. And in a good way, like, oh my God, I have to take like half the things this person just said and do them, whether we hire them or not. Like, oh, oh my God, this is incredible. Like that should be the feeling. It doesn't prove they're right. Maybe they're a good salesperson, that's possible, but it's part of the part of what you need to see, that kind of incredibleness. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, again another person that you think of as being very controlling and opinionated. Um, said that uh, he hires people who um, who he himself would work for if the circumstances were slightly different. And it's hard to imagine someone like a Zuckerberg working for anybody, right? But nevertheless, that's exactly how he thinks about it. That's what he says. Would you work for this person? Are you that excited about it? Um, if the circumstances were different, obviously don't do that. <laughs> so it should feel like learning. That's the first thing. And, the, and then, of course, uh, the, the bonus is if you have... Uh, friends or acquaintances in this area where you can say, look, they said these seven things which sounded good to me, is this true or crap? <laughs> like, am I excited for nothing or is this real? So hopefully you have someone you can, uh, you can, you can ask that, right? In the best case, you can have uh, somebody else interview, but that's usually uh, kind of too hard. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to hire for a results-oriented person rather than an action-oriented person. Let me explain what I mean. Let's say it's um, event planning. An action-oriented event planner goes like that. When you ask them a question like, uh, uh, tell me about a great event that you put on recently. The action-oriented events planner says, uh, oh yeah, we had this venue, it was really nice. We had these curtains and it was backlit. Uh, The food was really good. People said they had a great time. Um, People stayed late, so I'm pretty sure that they were happy about it. It was a really great event. Action-oriented, all the stuff they did. The results-oriented person says this, Oh yeah, it was a great event, we had this cool venue, the food was great. 98% of the people we polled afterwards said that they would come back next year. So I'm sure that uh, like we added a lot of value. Also, we put um, uh, uh, 15 leads into the sales pipeline and four of them closed. So we're pretty happy with it. Results oriented. What was the purpose of the event and did it do it? Not what the food was. Now, of course you want people who care about their craft and wanna talk about the details of the food. Like, that's, that's okay, right? Caring about it, being proud of that, that's good. But ultimately the question is what is the results? And if you hire people who already think about results, then you already know how to manage them because that is how you're gonna manage them. You're not gonna tell them what to do with the food. You're not gonna tell them how to pick a venue. That's the whole point is for them to do their job. What you're gonna do is hold them accountable to produce whatever results you agreed were the purpose of this event in the first place, to create sales leads or brand or I don't know, whatever the reason, right? And so since that's how you're gonna manage them, you want people who are already oriented that way, who are happy to have the goal set up. Okay, 10 sales, awesome, Like get out of my way so I can go get it. Yes, perfect. So you wanna hire people that think that way already because that is how you're going to manage them and hold them accountable for doing their job. Um, and then you and edit. It's okay to edit. I don't like the uh, I don't like the colors we used. Um, I don't. I think the headline message of the event is is not powerful enough. These are things you can do. You're not f- fully hands free. You're an editor, and that's good. And by the way, that's the right way to hire everybody, including the people that are in your area of expertise. Just because you're a superstar engineer doesn't mean that you don't wanna hold engineers accountable to results as opposed to micromanaging how the architecture works or how the class was refactored and all that nonsense. Um, After all, that's the fun part of being a developer, isn't it, to design stuff and then to prove you're right by doing it? That's the fun. So even if you you hire the people in your expertise, don't take the fun away. (laughs) Don't do all the fun stuff like architecture and leave them with the rest of the stuff like the last 10% takes 90% of the time. That shouldn't be their job, their only job. They should be part of the job. They should, be, they should be able to do both the first 90% that's fun and the last 10% that's not fun. That should be their job. Don't take that from them. This is tough to admit. I don't know as much. I can't learn that as quickly. I need other people who are better. I'm, gonna, I'm going to surround myself with people that are better at their various disciplines than I am. What kind of a weird situation is that? But that's what the best CEOs do, is they have surrounded themselves with the very best, of course, How else would you up-level the the capabilities of the business, except to hire people that are better than you always? Is there any other way to up-level the power of the business? But it requires you to have that, um, not egoless, it's not egoless. You're the CEO, or the founder, or the executive, the leader, etc. It's not egoless, you're still that person. But it's your job to build up this team around you that is that good. And that is exactly not, obviously, what this person did, <laughs> right, exactly not. Um, and it would have solved some of these things, probably. Again, we don't know the person, but it probably would. Again, then, what would the emotional state be if that were true? If you were surrounded by people who were better than you, better at writing code, at design, at marketing, better than you, how would that make you feel in terms of stress? Or, I mean, if the whole company's still on your shoulders. That never goes away, right? We know that. But still... There's a difference between there's all these folks and I have to tell them what to do, and there's all these folks and they are making the company better, and all I have to do is keep, keep the bar as high as possible in a positive way. Well, that's a much different kind of stress, and it's obviously a much stronger business as well, both. Okay. <clears throat> so we've gotten a couple of techniques, but I want to spend um, half the time talking about the end, this acquisition thing, and the fact that it, it's so often all this stuff ends in something negative, because that's a, that's a pretty brutal reality, uh, which maybe some of these things help that I've just said, pro- hopefully, but it's not, it can't be the full story. There's, there's, uh, there's something else uh, going on here. So I wanna talk about this so-called success. Um, <clears throat> so he says there's uh, two options, then he lists three options. There's really four options because he, it should have been an option, but obviously he doesn't want to. So uh, he has no options, in other words, um, uh, which, is, which is scary. So w- why is this? And, and here's my question, you know, thinking about this. Um, why isn't the answer to sell the business? He's unhappy, there's all this nonsense. He's clearly unhappy, like, get rid of it. Just get some money and leave. And maybe get to a situation that's not as, as unhappy with money, like, does, isn't that obvious, <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> but it's hard to sell, right? We know the phrase, ba- selling your baby, and every time you say that, you're like, it's not my baby, that's not a good analogy. I have kids, it's not like that. I would sell, I have sold to businesses, and I would not sell my kids, so it's not the same, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for applauding me not selling my baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm such a good dad. I <laughs> wouldn't even sell my daughter. That's amazing. Uh, very progressive. So uh, there's a study which, uh, <laughs> with Sherry Walling here in the front row, who you'll hear from later today, um, t- uh, told me about uh, on this very subject of, of startups and babies. So this, in the study, uh, they showed uh, they showed founders neutral images like this, and they have an MRI, so they're scanning the brain looking for what lights up. And you know, this is just normal stuff here, looking at the landscape. And then they show a picture of their kid. Here's mine. And, uh, of course, their brains light up in this way. Oh, it's my kid, you know, whatever kind of stuff the brain's doing about that. Then they show them back to the landscapes. Brain goes back to you know, neutral state. And then they show them pictures of the logo of their company. <laughs> and the brain goes right back to baby. The brain goes right back. It is, it is your baby, actually. Maybe it's not surprising that those 22 entrepreneurs, again, not statistically significant, OK, fine. But that 21 out of those 22 had what is effectively postpartum depression, the same kind of depression. Interesting. So, uh, so yeah, so it's the same thing. So I remember, um, I remember the moment when I sold SmartBear. But before then, I had gotten this offer that was a pretty good offer. And uh, so this is my previous company, um, and. Uh, uh, it was bootstrapped. I was there for six years, so you know how that goes. Everyone in here get, understands that situation single, uh, uh, single founder and everything. Um, and I got a pretty good offer to sell. So I go home and tell my wife so, over a plate of, uh, of, of super enchiladas, <laughs> uh, I just got this offer and it's pretty good. I don't know what to do. And she says, Well, you, you have to sell. And I said, Well, and to keep it, the business was doing about a million dollars in, in uh, profit per year, so I didn't have to, right? Like, what do you mean I have to? She says, well, don't you realize how unhappy you are? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> it's just like this guy, right, but, my own, but in my own way. I did end up selling the company, and I thought, as I f- sent the 87th page through the fax machine to New York, sell the business, I thought, well, now I'll feel good because <laughs> I sold the thing that was... I, you know, I had eventually, essentially burned out, of course, this is common, and so uh, now it'll feel good, and of course it didn't, felt bad. Again, what the hell? That's a trap. Um, and so why, <laughs> why? I mean, I mean, yeah, it's the baby, but, um, but why, what is, what is the going on? And what I think it is is, is uh, that the startup is your identity that it's the only thing you've really thought about when you wake up at two in the morning, when you're supposed to be on vacation or whatever, you're still just only thinking about this. This is you. You don't have hobbies. <laughs> you, don't, like, you don't do that kind of stuff. Like, This is it. This is who you are. And like, What do you do when who you are goes away? Here's an example, and I did get permission from Dries to do this, so this is not speaking out of school. But uh, this is uh, Dries Butart, he's the founder of Drupal, and the logo of Drupal is this. <laughs> Right, <laughs> so uh, his comment was, "I don't, I don't like this photo because my mouth is open." I'm like, "Yeah, well, you, you're better looking than I am, so you can shut up." Um, <laughs> so, anyway, so it's your identity, and even if it's not in your, if your face isn't your logo, it's still your identity. And so, what happens though is that we get into this situation, like I did, like other people I've talked to this year, like these entrepreneurs, etc., cetera, um, which is sort of like this where we take, we're take, we constantly trying not to die for so long that finally we can take a breath because the company's basically working or there's an offer. There's some reason why we can take a breath and look up and, and kind of consider what's going on and, and it's kind of, in a funny way, too late. Like you already built something. There's already an organization, there's already a thing. Like, you're already burnt out or whatever the situation is because you weren't thinking about it all along and which is logical that you weren't who can think about the future I don't know when we have for lunch tomorrow who can think about you know five years from now what's it you know what's what's it all what's your purpose like who shut up I'm just trying to get another sign up today so we don't go under I don't care about purpose you know (laughs) Jesus right like so that makes sense so uh But then we don't know what it's all about. And that's a problem, and it leads to this problem, and, and also it kind of asks an existential question of why do this at all? Um, And so what entrepreneurs often do after they sell is that they, uh, sometimes they find it a a new purpose in something like philanthropy, but often they start another company. And some people say it's for the highs, but I don't think it's for the highs because I think this is what it's like to be an entrepreneur. It's mostly (laughs) toil, (laughs) it's toil, right? Toil's a good biblical word for a sermon, right, toil? And so, uh, so no, that's, I don't think it's, that doesn't sound fun, actually. But it is a new identity. It's what you know. It's it's, it's how to attach yourself to something that's that important again. Um, and so, so one conclusion could be, so never sell, I guess, because you're just going to end up doing this again. You might as well, you know, not start from scratch. <laughs> that sounds even harder, but that's not true. It wasn't true for even a uh, Minecraft guy, Marcus right? Like, it, no, sometimes you do need to, to change. Um, as Seth Godin says in the dip, I know he's coming on next, I don't know if he's here, but as he says in the dip, so you sometimes you have to push through it and sometimes you don't. Uh, I don't know if that's anything useful um, <laughs> um anyway so, so it's uh so sometimes you have to sell and so smart a uh, smart bear this is a good point right here should i have sold look at that it was just sold this year to frisco for 450 million dollars and i sold it here <laughs> so you know maybe it was maybe i should have stayed maybe i shouldn't have sold even if i was unhappy maybe i should have just pushed through that right for the big payday perhaps except the, the, this wasn't the trajectory of SmartBear when I sold it. This was the trajectory of SmartBear when I sold it. And there's no reason to believe it would do all that. That'll happen with different leadership, with different goals, different strategy, injection of money, all sorts of things. There's no reason to believe that's what, what happen. You should have, uh, th- what, what you should expect is that the thing that happened for the previous six years would continue to happen, more or less. And me being ha- happy the whole time. That actually sounds pretty bad. In fact, it could look like this right and there's there's plenty of companies that get to a couple million revenue or whatever it is even 10 even 20 stall out maybe they go smaller whatever once it stalls out even an acquisition you don't get as much money as you want i feel like a lot of uh, small companies have this problem like uh i had this like my my old camry so i had this camry that was 12 years old and the thing would just turn on the first time you ran it. It purred. It was so good, right? And the Kelly Blue Book value of this car is low. It's like two grand, right? It's like, there's no way I could buy any car on earth for two grand that would be as good as this car. <laughs> Impossible, because I know it's a good car, And but the value in the market for a used Camry is not much. So I feel like a lot of small companies are that. They're my used Camry. They're they are more valuable to the founders, because you know, like, I know it's gonna generate this kind of, you know, profit next year. And you're probably right, but uh, that's not the market value. And a lot of times, uh, that's what happens, so it's tough. But it was, so it was the right thing to do, not just because uh, financially this is not, you know, this is not correct, and because there's risk, also because I was burned out, and then what happened? Uh, Well, I I finally left because my wife was pregnant, so I was a stay-at-home dad for a year. And I wouldn't give that away for anything. That was amazing. And then I had the space because of stuff like that and, and not having something to do, but having the money to not have something to do. So I was able to wait until it was a great idea that I could validate. I had some ideas and I tried to validate them and they weren't, turns out, not so good ideas. And then, But then one was and that turned into WP Engine and now we have a sign on the building in downtown Austin and we have 500 employees and 70,000 customers and we're still growing. And in terms of any numbers like SmartBear, it's bigger than SmartBear is now, even though SmartBear is 17 years old now. Wow. And that would not have happened. Now, that doesn't mean automatically there's success the next time. That's not true. Nevertheless, in retrospect, it was absolutely the right thing to sell. So you can't say just because you lose your sense of identity and blah, 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 that therefore you shouldn't sell. I mean, it's a perfect example of why I, I absolutely should have, even in retrospect. The issue here is that change often sucks, even for us who like change. We like a dynamic environment. We like saying things like, uh, I like startups, because every day is different. That's what, the kind of stuff we say. But it's hard, um, it, it, and, and ultimately, especially in these difficult things, it, it, uh, cases, it's hard. Um, so the company could grow, and now your job is to manage managers, and you don't want to do that. You want to go back to coding. That kind of change is bad. Or you say, okay, I will go back to coding and I'll go hire someone to run the company. But then you give up control, and what if that person messes up? And the whole point, the whole reason you did this in the first place is probably because you want control over something, even though we all know the last thing a startup is is something you have control over. I mean, you do not control anything, really. Um, It's a bad thing for that. Um, Or you don't sell and the company fails, or you. Uh, you do sell and you're unhappy, like, the, the, it's like all these changes feel bad, but it, they're coming. It's just, it's, something's going to come. So what can we do with that, uh, with that fact? And so what we do with that fact is understand that each of these things that happen are, are, the, are the point. This journey of creating a startup and all the stuff that we do, that is the point. In other words, the end is not the point. Even though that's our quote-unquote goal, it's actually the not the important thing. Because who knows what that is? Who knows if it'll even be good? So what that means is all the stuff in the years between you starting the company and whatever the goal is, those have to be the years that matter. That has to be the time in which you're fulfilled. Happy is probably the wrong word for running a business, but how about fulfilled? <laughs> this has to be the good times all the time, not the one little unit at the end which may or may not be good and may or may not happen the whole rest of the time. It's cliche to say it's the journey, so I, I, not the destination, so I hesitate to say it, but it is true. <laughs> that is true, that is the answer. So there's, a, there's the parable of the wooden ship that leaves London, of course London, it's an old parable. Um, you made fun of Boston, I have to make fun of how everything in London is old and crusty. Um, <laughs> uh, so the wooden ship leaves London, and uh, it goes around the world, and uh, as a, no, <laughs> no, no, that's Spain or Portugal or whatever it was at that time, I don't know. Iberia, it's Iberia. All right, anyway, so uh, as, the boat, as the wooden ship goes around the world, the wooden planks rot one by one. And so along the way, each plank that rots is replaced with new wood, and so by the time it returns to Iberia, um, <laughs> every, plank is diff- every plank is new. So the question is, did the ship go around the Earth? It's not the same ship, <laughs> but something went around the Earth, I guess. <laughs> People did, maybe. So it's an interesting question. So, so what I think is that it, it did go around the Earth because the whole point is the journey. The journey happened, and that's the point. It doesn't actually matter what the planks are, And this is a good uh, analogy to startups because the plans will change the products will change the people will change your first employee will quit you don't want to face that right (laughs) or maybe your co-founder maybe you'll sell it like like everything about the company is going to change but the journey did happen it did and that and that's why that's that is actually the thing that matters and can you do this right? The answer is yes, because I'm doing it right now at WP Engine, I want to tell you about how I'm doing it right, um, since everything to this point has been super negative and only slightly constructive. <laughs> so, so yeah, here's, here's how I applied all the things I just said and, and more, and I'll show you um, now at WP Engine and what we've done. So this is a picture of me and uh, Heather Bruner, our CEO winning together the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award for Central Texas. There's a lot of awards that don't matter, but the Ernst & Young one uh, is, is, is uh, prestigious. So this was a real honor. Now right away, oh, oh and, and another thing you should know about Heather is she joined three years into the company as, as CEO, I was CEO at first, and then she joined about 80 people in or so, she became CEO. So some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, why is she winning an Entrepreneur Award if she came in three years in? That's not a founder. That's an entrepreneur. And see, that's exactly the kind of thinking I'm trying to get you to not have. As if only the founder can have a huge impact on the business, a transformative impact on the business. Can be so good and so smart about the culture or direction or strategy or team composition or whatever that only the founder, the founder does have a lot, of course, not taking away from that, but that's the only way. Now, it can't, it's probably not true that 30 people at the company have that kind of uh, power, that's true. But to say no one can is self-fulfilling. Okay, then no one will. That's weak. That makes a weak business, and it's harder for you, because that means it's all on you, I guess, because you're the only one good enough to try to do anything about this stuff. So uh, there were kind of two pieces of making this decision of not being the CEO anymore and having Heather be. And by the way, tremendously successful in uh, in retrospect. It's now been four years since then, so it's easy to tell you what happened in retrospect. All those great numbers I just told you about how successful we are. Yeah, that was Heather. You know that curve? That's kind of what the WP Engine curve looked like too. Because Heather hired and managed the whole executive team and I could go on and on about all the things, right? So there were two pieces. One was the intellectual decision. Is this the right thing to do? Which I want to give you that framework. It's a good framework for A variety of things not just this one topic of should you be CEO and by the way I'm not trying to say you shouldn't be the CEO it's just a good question and there's other sort of similar kinds of questions so I'm going to give you a framework that uh, uh, for making those kinds of uh, decisions that sort of summarizes all this there's also the emotional decision of course how did I get through the difficult emotional decision and the fact that I was wrestling with it indicates that probably this is the right move but how do you get over that as, as a founder so what happened was, I was, uh, I was at this bar called Wink in Austin, it's a wine bar, and uh, so I had this conversation with <clears throat> um, a, uh, 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 I guess you could say an advisor, and he says, uh, and, and he's, he's been the CEO of companies, including public companies, he's gone through a lot of stuff. And he says, uh, I, know what you're, I know what you're thinking. I said, what? He goes, you want the credit. I said uh what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, it w- if you ever ring the bell on the NASDAQ someday, like, you want the credit. And I said, well, you know, it's not like, uh, I would think I did it all. <laughs> like, not that kind of credit, but just there's some kind of, it's your company and it was successful kind of a thing. And I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's true. Like, it's, it's, it's a shallow thing maybe, but maybe not. Maybe you get, maybe you should, maybe it's okay to be proud of <laughs> something like that and want the credit. So he goes, uh, well, you're the founder. You're always going to get the credit. And that was it. That's all I needed to hear. I, I know that sounds so trite and, and uh, tautological, but I needed to hear that. So maybe, maybe it's useful for you to hear that same thing just like it was for me. But you're going to get the credit anyway. It's going to happen. Like set, You can just set that aside because you get it. You get all the good, the good stuff. In fact, if anything's hard and tough, Heather's the primary responsible party now. <laughs> And if everything goes really well, I get to walk around at conferences like this and say, yeah, my company's got a lot of employees and stuff. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Get the credit. Um, So that doesn't mean you have to do it. It just, uh, you know, sometimes it's simple to put your ego aside a little and still have it. Still get your ego. I still get it. It's, It's good. So the way I would summarize now the intellectual decision is was this the right choice, as well as summarizing actually everything we talked about just now into kind of one final framework that you can use to make decisions like these um, is the following. And you've seen probably this framework before, I'm guessing, but you probably saw it in a blog post and you said, oh, that kind of makes sense, and then you forgot. So hopefully now it's one that you can actually use because now there's meat on it, and you can say, I'm actually going to make decisions with this. So what does it mean to be fulfilled? Gotta have joy, gotta like what you're doing. And, if, and of course, there's stuff you're good at and there's an intersection. Boring, right? And so the stuff in here, the stuff you're not good at but you like, well, it's entertainment or it's, if, it's, if it's sort of professional, then maybe it's learning. That's what it means to like getting into something but you're not good at it yet is that you're learning. Okay, fine, that's fine. And this is toil. You don't like it but you're good at it so you do it. <laughs> like the books in your business or whatever, right? Like it's, it's, just, it's just there. It's okay, you have to do toil sometimes. But this is where you wanna be, of course, and this is ideal, and for a lot of engineers, this means when you get lost in code for 10 hours and you forget to pee and eat, and uh, you're like, ugh, right? Or when you do it all day, and uh, then you go home and you just open the laptop and keep doing it. Recently, uh, Ben Horowitz said, uh, in response to the question, why do salespeople get commission? Why can't they just work really hard like engineers? And he says, well, when an engineer works all day and goes home, he turns on the laptop then and, and uh, works on code, some more, because you love it. When, an, exe- when, a, when a, uh, an executive enterprise saleswoman goes home, she does not then do enterprise sales on the side. <laughs> it's toil, <laughs> it sucks, so we have to pay her for that, right? So uh, anyway, so you want to be in this, and of course we do as engineers, so that's lucky for us. Now, that's not insightful. This is the part that kind of brings everything together. What does the company need you to do? Or what needs somebody to do, for that matter? And this is where we can, this is where I made the decision intellectually about uh, bringing on another CEO. Because when you ask, like, what is it that the CEO needs to do of a company with 80, 100, or even 1,000 people, there's all kinds of bullet points, like hiring and managing that executive team that we just talked about, of people who are all better than that, to run global sales, to do global brand marketing, to consistently bring in more revenue every month than the one before, a 24-7, extremely high-performing uh, uh, support team with hundreds of people. I mean, there's just uh, the kind of finances that a company that's more like 100 million revenue needs uh, in governance and controls, God knows what. These are the kinds of things, managing a, a real board of directors, I mean, these all kinds of things that, uh, that it means to be a CEO of a certain size and, and above, at least for us. Um, And when I kind of thought like, well, am I good at that stuff Um, with with only one or two exceptions out of maybe a dozen, the answer is no. And do I want to? Does it sound like fun? And again, with one or two exceptions, the answer was no. So that's a good way to burn out. It needs to be done, though. The company needs it to be successful. So this is part of how we made the decision. And so just to sort of wrap it up with the rest of the stuff we just said, this part where it's fun and you're good at it, but we don't need to do it, thats what, that, that was on that other framework. This is doing the feature that we don't really need to do. And this is the trap where uh, you're doing the AdWords because it'd be fun to learn it, and the company does need it, but what the company really needs is for AdWords that work. Or maybe it's not even AdWords. You need someone who's a little bit more broad than I'm gonna do AdWords. Someone whose charter is to double sales. Figure it out. That's going to take a special person. They may even need money, right? But doubling sales actually changes the business, and mucking about with AdWords probably doesn't, right? And then there's the burnout, which is but probably where our our object of study is. Where the, our object of study probably is doing things business needs, like writing software and doing sales and stuff like that, probably, because it's a company, and it's going, so, and no one will work for You can't retain anybody, so I guess he's doing the work that needs to be done, but he's burned out because he doesn't like it. I was doing that at SmartBear, too. I, I could have hired either a Heather or just somebody else at SmartBear, too, but I didn't, you know, it was too late for me then. So obviously the whole point is you can be here, that's ideal, you can't be here all the time, but what you can do is set as a goal that you and everyone in your business that you hire or have should be there as much as possible because that's where they're gonna be most productive as well as happy, which is what everyone deserves and what's gonna be most efficient and effective for the business too, it's both. And so when you do that and you realize that uh, it's not about you, it's about everybody, it's about us. you realize that you're not an emperor. Emperor is the wrong, uh, the wrong sense. Shepherd is a better sense than emperor. <clears throat> and uh, there's employees and partners and customers, there's uh, maybe investors, depending. There's different people in which you're a shepherd rather than an emperor, and, and, uh, and that you should be not the center of the universe, but a force in the universe. Maybe even a primary, the primary force in the universe, but a force, not, uh, not an emperor. And there's a great uh, passage that describes exactly this, which was written 2,500 years ago in in case you thought anything was new or that human beings weren't like this forever and needed advice like this forever. Um, So this is from the Tao Te Ching. And uh, let me just read the 17th chapter here because, again, it's a sermon, so I've got to read a chapter of something, right? (laughs) The best leaders, people do not know they have them. The lesser leaders are loved and praised. Even lesser are feared. The least are despised. Those leaders who show no trust will not be trusted. Those leaders who are quiet, their words are valued. With the best leaders, when the people's task is completed, they will say, we did it ourselves. So be a shepherd, not an emperor. Hire the right people and let them do it themselves. Let them do amazing work and let them be proud of it, right? Be an editor, not a tyrant. Be a shepherd, not an emperor. Do the hard things that are also the right things. Set your ego aside because you're still going to get all the credit. Thank you. you. Now, I'm kind of. Kind of torn. That was a fabulous sermon to start with. Um, I studied geography at university, by the way. so oh, nice. One thing. <laughs> um, we could. We'll take two questions. But I, I mean, you're going to be around for the whole time, yes. so let's um, let's pick those up afterwards mm-hmm. as well. So, questions. Thanks for a great sermon. And amen. <laughs> um, When when you started the talk, the founder in pain, he talked about one of his options being his life being held for two to five years because the expectation that after acquisition, he'd have to go work for the company that was acquiring him. Now, I appreciate that sounds like that wasn't exactly your experience, but I imagine you have some experience with that. Could you speak to what that experience is like and how we should be thinking about it? Because it seems like a big consideration when thinking about potentially selling. It is a big consideration. So one fallacy people have about selling is they're fixated on the price tag, the, the valuation, and not on the terms. And the same valuation at three years stick around and one year stick around, that's, that's a very different proposition because your time's more valuable than that, right? Um, so so this is one of the terms. And terms are always negotiable. So, uh, at, um, so it, it's very common for founders to wanna leave or other uh, executives or people, especially in certain areas like, like finance, where the finance is probably rolled up and so forth, so generally what happens is if you leave sooner, you get less money and you can either negotiate that up front or they'll sort of load it into the terms. Um, and so I think that's fine. And it's, easy, it's better to do it up front, just so everybody, everybody knows. Um, and uh, uh, whether it's good or bad is variable. Um, I'll give you an example. There was a, a company called Mailgun that was sold to Rackspace a while ago, and one of the founders quit on the day <laughs> that he could quit and have all of his compensation. The other one stuck around for another five years at Rackspace, the company that bought them, um, and the employees almost all stayed for years. So that just goes to show it depends, <laughs> which is which is a shitty uh, statement because it's not very prescriptive, but it's true. It depends. Some people find, so for example, the reason this person stayed is because they were able to go into a place and do M&A, and they found that interesting. So doing M&A, doing the acquisition side of M&A, you kind of have to be at a big company for that to become interesting. So he's like, this is fun. I like this. So even though he had a boss and as a founder, that's not really what you want, there were other reasons that intrigued him or interested him as part of his if not career, then just interest level, right? And, and so that worked out. And the other one could care less, and he's like, no, I gotta do my own thing, and there was that uh, factor. Um, would it dep- would it change if you were uh, acquired by Google or if you were acquired by Oracle? W- would the amount of time you wanna stay change? You know, maybe. Um, but even then, you know, you have people that are acquired by Google and, and stay, because they're like, oh, I'm, I just found heaven. I just literally died and went to heaven. And then other people who are like, it's not all it's cracked up to be, and besides conference rooms kind of stink. So. You know, it's like, you, you never know what you're going to get, sadly. But So you can either uh, have it in the terms and just see, or you can negotiate up front and see how, how that changes the deal. Jason, how do you balance that Venn diagram where there's joy and need, and someone wants to learn how to do something they're not yet? Good at something, so even the M&A thing, they w- didn't have the skill going into that. Yet they were presumably were good at the end. How do you balance that specifically yourself at WP Engine, putting people into jobs where they're going to learn how to do something well? So first, uh, what it's f- first the context. If it's a startup with two people, we don't have time for people to uh, to just figure things out. Like if if we need a whole person to do marketing, we need them to be successful. <laughs> We don't have time for them to muck about for a year. Like, Do it, (laughs) and if you can't do it, we need someone who can do it. We don't have this kind of money or time to spend. At a larger organization like WP Engine, we a lot of times have people where they start, what we always say is you start in your area of strength, you start where you are skilled, and that's your primary job. Then there's some area that you're growing into. And we're doing that too. So there we expect you to be failing and doing less, less than good work because that's what you're doing is growing in that way. But you also have a basis of, of, of ability that we also need. And that's just what you're doing. Also, if we have a team of say 10 uh, engineers, some can be junior. There's room, there's space we can mentor and you know it's okay. If there's only two engineers in the whole company, one of them cannot be a junior. Right, So I think the context matters of what can you literally invest in. That's what the company's doing is investing in people. So of course it's great, we do it a lot. We even have a 10 person learning and development team inside the company to teach people how to become better. So we really, really believe in investing in people and growing them in, and, and doing that learning. But of course we didn't have that early, <laughs> right? That was, at, that was only when we had some, some kind of scale. So uh, So I think early on you can't be generous like that yet because because there's no spare time, there's no spare dollars. Quick one, Paul, Fine. OK, Jason, hi. Um, it, at the end of uh, SmartBear, it was your wife who had that difficult conversation with you yeah. and said, you're unhappy. And that was clearly a shock to you uh, at the time. Yeah. What strategies have you learned since then um, with this new venture that you've been on, internal and externally, for monitoring your state? ask his wife more often. <laughs> yeah, keep asking them. <laughs> right. Besides talk to your wife more often. Well, we have a, I have a monthly one-on-one with my wife. <laughs> um, it actually is good to keep friends that can tell you the truth. Most friends won't, but the ones that do are really the best, right? Um, I have found that Heather can be that person. Um, I think, again, especially as founders, we feel like uh, we don't wanna be vulnerable at work or maybe anywhere. Um, and it is true that like if I walked up to someone in, uh, who, who, uh, I, I, you know, employee number 462 and I don't, I don't remember their last name in support and I was just like, let me tell you something, I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. Like that would freak them out, <laughs> right? So there's a, <laughs> there's a time and a place, right? It's a <laughs> time and a place. Um, what I like to say is a founder has an invisible hammer. Everything you say or even do, if you, you kind of walk in and you're like, that has a huge effect on the room. It can have an effect if anybody does that, right? But if you do it, everyone's like, what's wrong? Do you think our, we're going to miss our numbers next month? Like, are we okay? And they start interpreting things differently. Uh, you know, that that person's project stopped. You think, like, we're, you know, and it's like oh, this, all this stuff starts going just because you were in a hump one day. It's kind of frightening, and uh, you're always on, and you've got this hammer. Or if you ask a, a, a legitimately... Uh, curious question, how's it going with that project? I heard you were working on this thing. It's really interesting. You're trying to show interest. Oh, my God. Why has the founder asked me this? Um, oh, it's great. And then they like do something differently. Um, <laughs> they reprioritize their work to do the thing because they think it matters. And their manager, this is all stuff that happened to me, their manager comes back around to you and says, why did you tell him to work on that and not the other thing? I did it. I was asking. Going, oh, my God, right? <laughs> you have a hammer. You have a hammer. And it, it's really difficult, actually. Um, and so... Who can you ask? So, so you can think like, you can't just be vulnerable all the time like, because of the hammer. That does not work. But there's gotta be a few people where you can. And so maybe as friends. It's nice to have one or two people in the company, inside the company, because then they know what's going on, they and they, can, they have more direct context to talk about stuff. Um, and look, life does this. Sometimes you are here. Maybe that's okay. Maybe you just have to be here for a little bit. And what does that mean? So For example, um, um, there's been times where I've had zero direct reports. Right now I look after product. So there might be another day where I'm back to zero. Dharmesh Shah, of course, kind of famously at HubSpot has always had zero direct reports. That's nice. In other words, I say that only just to say, there are many ways. It has to make sense for the company. We can't just say, oh, you're the founder, so we're gonna put you over here and somehow, like, you know, it can't, it can't not make sense. It has to be where anyone in the company looks at it and asks, why is that happening? And someone says, oh, and in one or two sentences says it, and they're like, well, that makes perfect sense. So, like, for me, not having any reports, why does that make sense? Oh, well uh, you know, Jason's fantastic at doing things like talking to the press or Ripping somebody out of a job at another company and saying like you got to come work here, right? Um, And also looking after strategy. But what he's he's not good at is stuff like building large teams and managing them. He's just that is not his personality. He's a founder. He's not a personality to freaking scale teams. Are you kidding me? No. He likes to make make new stuff and talk a lot and beat people up until they agree with him out of just you know exhaustion if nothing else. So (laughs) like that's what he's doing. (laughs) And like oh yeah of course why would have actually yeah why would a founder necessarily be good at running a whole big group or something. Yeah, why not? Logical, so it has to make sense, right? Um, One of the tricks Darmesh uses, which I try to use too, is he says, I'm always working on just three things. They can change, some of them don't, like culture, like looking after culture. Some do, some are projects, but I just have three, and so what are you working on? He's like, well right now it's these three things. And everyone can say, oh, great. Right, so so I, I think you can get really creative if you want about what is the role what the organization? What does that mean about what other roles are needed in the organization? Therefore, um, how can you still be useful and not just in the corner? Happy to work on something that's actually not that useful. That's not good. That's not healthy. Just quit if you're going to do that, right? Because people will notice, right? But there, there, are, there are often ways, right? We're creative. We can figure out ways. Thanks for listening to the of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.